Hello, and welcome to another spine-tingling episode of the UMass IPM Fruit Loop, the podcast component of the UMass Extension Fruit Team's weekly healthy fruit newsletter. Our goal is to keep you in the loop with matters of the fruit. I am Hawkeye, also known in some circles as Liz Garofalo. I'm an extension educator with the University of Massachusetts Amherst Fruit Team specializing in IPM. I also have a special interest in pest forecasting, bad jokes, puns, and cider fruit, especially apples. Today, we'll cover our usual ground of current fruity events. Petal fall considerations factor heavily in this week's news. Dr. Green will be driving the horticulture bus, taking us on a tour through petal fall thinning recommendations. Dr. Pinero holds open office hours on plum curculio management, and yours truly will discuss the current state of apple scab. But first, we'll cover degree day accumulations and bud stages, brought to you by John Clements. As of May 10th, at the UMass Cold Spring Orchard in Belchertown, Massachusetts, Current degree day accumulations are as follows. Using a base 43 BE calculated in NUA, we have reached 444 degree days. Using base 50 BE, we have reached 210 degree days. According to the NUA degree days prediction by May 17th, that's next Monday, we will have reached 536 degree days base 43 BE. Macintosh petalfall should be occurring anywhere from 439 to 523 degree days base 43 BE with a update on bud stages for the UMass Cold Spring Orchard in Belchertown, Massachusetts. Currently Macintosh apple is at late bloom to early petalfall. Honeycrisp apple is at full bloom plus. Gala apple late bloom, crispy pear petalfall, Red Haven peach petalfall plus Plus, we're going to pare back on the upcoming pest events and only cover two. Codling moth first catch should occur anywhere between 395 and 562 degree days, base 43 BE, and Macintosh petalfall should occur anywhere from 439 to 523 degree days, base 43 BE. We do have an upcoming event. And we have the official green light from the powers that be. Barring any catastrophic event, the UMass Extension Fruit Team will be holding its first in a while in-person twilight meeting, May 19th, 2021, at the UMass Cold Spring Orchard from 4 to 5.30 p.m. Since this is our first in-person meeting in a while, please bear in mind there will be some new protocols in place. For example, there will be no food available. The university will require masks and social distancing. Pre-registration and on-site check-in will be required, as will be symptom pre-screening. We will be doing our best to make this as smooth a process as possible and are looking forward to seeing you all. Please use the link provided in this week's email newsletter to pre-register. dive into how John sees it will not be quite as deep as usual as he asks us to take a read on what Dr. Green has to say. Nonetheless, here is the way I see it with John Clements. John says apples are entering petal fall slowly at the UMass Orchard. He says it was as close to a snowball bloom across the board as he has seen in a while. Average temperatures are well below normal. Highs should be 70 degrees this time of year. He certainly has not seen a lot of bee pollination activity with all the cool weather and wind. Your mileage may vary. John says he keeps thinking if we set an apple crop, it will be a miracle. But those apple trees are pretty good tricksters. Some growers have applied bloom chemical thinning sprays. John says he'd expect modest results. A full petal fall chemical thinning spray is particularly warranted. 
The timing for that looks like this weekend. But the inclusion of carbaryl in that spray might be problematic given the lingering state of bloom. Please read Dwayne Green's thinning article in Horticulture. That's about all John has for now. But wait, one more thing, he says. There was some serious discussion last week about interpreting the fire blight models in NUA when there was an arguably marginal risk of fire blight infection. Dan Cooley addressed the subject at our Zoom Twilight meeting last week, but if you missed it or want to review his presentation, you can watch it on our UMass Extension Fruit Team YouTube channel, or you can read John's blog post at jmcextman.blogspot.com. The doctor is in. Dr. Jaime Pinero, that is. So pull up a couch. It's time for this week's Entomology Psychology. Let's get started with the Pinero Lab's weekly report of insect pest captures and monitoring traps at Cold Spring Orchard, Belchertown, Massachusetts. These are for the period of May 4 through May 10. 0.08 tarnished plant bug were captured in unbaited white sticky cards. No European apple sawfly were caught. Two plump coculio were caught in odor-baited traps. 75 oriental fruit moth were caught in pheromone delta traps. We just experienced another week with very low tarnished plant bug activity. One tarnished plant bug was captured at the Cold Spring Orchard for the past seven days, and zero tarnished plant bugs were captured in traps in the nine monitored orchard blocks throughout Massachusetts. That 0.08 was of course an average of those 10 different sites. European apple sawfly is yet again a no-show thus far. The oriental fruit moth biofix was set on April 26th at the Cold Spring Orchard. One trap caught 39 oriental fruit moth from May 3 to May 7, while a second trap caught 111 oriental fruit moth in one week. It was April 30 through May 7, for a weekly average of 75 oriental fruit moth per trap. Thus, this seems to be a period of high oriental fruit moth activity. Dr. Pinero asks, are you ready for the petal fall spray against plum curculio? PC activity continues to be low. Eight plum curculios have been caught in four monitoring traps since the previous week. Under these weather conditions, frequent PC monitoring is advised. Fruitlets should be monitored beginning at a petal fall to determine if egg laying injury is occurring. Keep in mind that PC females are more likely to lay eggs in king fruit. In a few weeks, they will actually show the opposite behavior. They will start laying eggs in the smaller fruit then. If fresh oviposition scars are observed, a first cover spray should be made to the entire block. A full block spray by the time of petal fall is needed given the ability of overwintered pieces to penetrate into the interior of the blocks. After the petal fall spray, continue to monitor for fresh scars. If more are found, a second cover spray targeting perimeter row trees will be needed. Cool, wet weather will prolong PC activity. Thus, Given that for the next 10 days or so, the weather will continue to be cool and wet, you may consider application of materials that have good rainfast properties. If you plan to use carbaryl as a thinner, this material can provide some level of protection against PC at petal fall, but do not rely on this insecticide alone to do the job since its level of efficacy is considered to be moderate only. There are other materials that would be more effective at controlling PC, which can be applied once the fruit reaches the six to eight millimeter size. A couple of the growers that Jaime works with say that they use 7XLR plus at the highest label rate for PC control only when PC pressure is moderate and the timing of application would coincide with the period of thinning. 
If this is done, however, Jaime says he would recommend following up with a frequent fruit monitoring in case some egg-laying activity takes place after the sprays. If no fresh egg-laying scars are found up to seven days after the seven spray, that would suggest that most of the PC population may have been controlled. Keep in mind that carbaryl is very toxic to bees, so the earliest time of application is at petal fall. Some weeks ago, Jaime discussed vertiprin, a new insecticide registered for palm, stone, and berry fruits. This product could be applied at petal fall when the six to eight millimeter fruits are more susceptible to PC attack. Use of vertiprin at the higher rate, 8.2 to 11 fluid ounces per acre, is expected to provide the best results. Note that vertiprin is highly toxic to bees exposed to direct treatment or residues on blooming plants. According to the label, vertiprin, end quote, has been determined to have a short residual toxicity time. Foliar application of this product is prohibited from onset of flowering until flowering is complete, unless the rate is limited to 0.036 to 0.054 pounds of active ingredient per acre, and the application is made in the time period between two hours prior to sunset and eight hours prior to sunrise, end quote. Consider this restriction if you decide to use vertiprin for PC control at petal fall, while some trees may still have open flowers. Make sure to read the product label for additional restrictions before applying it. The guest article that we'll get to in a little bit provides information on rainfast characteristics of various types of insecticides, including the diamides on fruit. Monitoring traps for spotted lanternfly in 10 locations and brown red stink bug also in 10 locations and spotted winged drosophila in five locations are being set up this week. We will keep you informed about invasive pest activity. And that, is it for this week's Entomology Psychology. Before we jump into disease, I'm going to sneak in this week's notes from the field. Oblique banded leaf roller larvae are active in apple buds. It's time to get out and scout. Examine 10 bud clusters or expanding terminals looking for live larvae. They are small right now, so look closely. If you find more than 3% of the inspection sites have live larvae in them, it's time to treat. If there is still open bloom, a BT material is the best bet as it is not toxic to any bees that are working your trees for you. If you wait until petal fall, be sure the material you select is effective for PC and OBLR. This week's disease update is short, sweet, to the point, and all about apple scab. What else would it be this time of year? Apple scab is a moving target we can really only see clearly after the fact. So far this year, according to the decision support systems, things have been fairly low-key. There was a saying in security forces that the jock consisted of long stretches of boredom punctuated by sudden extreme activity. I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but you know, we gotta keep things G-rated. This year's primary scab season has seemed a little bit like that analogy. Dry early spring conditions brought on a number of what should, could, would have been infection events that don't really seem to have amounted to any infection. With the exception of two, according to RIMPRO, on April 29 through May 2 and May 4 through May 6. RIMPRO's Apple Scab Spot Tracker estimates that lesions from the first of those dates will be visible around May 16th. NUA also estimates that there have been two significant infection events so far this year. One with an estimated 28% daily ascospore discharge and the other with 27% daily ascospore discharge. Both decision support systems also agree on the dates of these infection events. The NUA system still caches 
each infection event that was estimated to occur based on the green tip date the system generates prior to this date being manually entered by the user. Therefore, the total number of infection events that NEWA logged is more than we are likely to actually see in the field. Each decision support system estimates approximately 25% of the total seasonal ascospore potential remains. I am also still seeing a fairly large number of ascospores in the lab, more than 1,600 in combined in the two traps. This all points to the potential for another significant infection event should we get favorable conditions in the forecast. Quick update. Currently, as of the time of this recording, which is now 1.45 p.m. May 12, there is an infection event estimated by RIMPRO to begin on May 17, reaching the high-risk threshold of a rim of 300 on the 18th. The weather conditions associated with this apple scab infection event are worth keeping an eye on. If temperatures are sufficiently high, this event has the potential to also be a fire blight event as well. Emphasis on potential. If you need a refresher on fire blight models, you can find in-depth coverage by Dr. Cooley in last week's Healthy Fruit, Fruit Loop, and the UMass Extension Fruit Team's YouTube channel, as well as John's blog. As promised, Dr. Green is driving the bus for the horticult Kool-Aid is strictly bring your own in this week's horticulture section. The weather during the past week has ranged from cool to cold. Flower development was very slow. Dr. Green's assessment of flower development yesterday was that on many varieties, trees were at some stage of petal fall, one to four flowers in a cluster. The weather forecast for the next six days shows promise that more favorable thinning weather is on the way. Given the poor thinning conditions we experienced over the past two weeks, you should take full advantage of this opportunity. If you made hormone thinner applications during the past week, it is unlikely that these have had much of an effect because of the cold temperatures. The pollination weather during this bloom period has been poor. Fruit development has not proceeded enough to get a good sense about fruit development from earlier pollination. At this point, it is a judgment call where each grower will depend on bee flight observation in their orchard and the experience that you have had in your orchard in the past. Dr. Green says he is going on the assumption that pollination will be sufficient for a full crop, so initiation of thinning now is in order. It has been his experience in the past that we tend to underestimate initial fruit set under marginal weather conditions. Petal fall is a nebulous period between full bloom and when fruits start to size which usually is about five millimeters. When fruit reaches five millimeters, it is advisable to start to use the carbohydrate model located on NUA to help guide your decisions. Over the next week, it appears that there will be no red flags issued by the model. Dr. Green says he suspects that the model will suggest applying the normal amount of thinner or perhaps increase the rate that you normally apply. Dr. Green is recommending the same thinners this week that he did last week, NAA, NAD, and carbaryl. He is still recommending at least 10 parts per million NAA or 8 ounces per 100 gallons of NAD. The 7-day forecast suggests that high temperatures might reach the 70s by the weekend. Carbaryl, 1 pint to 1 quart per 100 gallons, is a conservative choice, especially if the weather is not very warm and these thinners are not as potent when applied at petal fall. He is still recommending the addition of carbaryl with NAD and NAA for added thinning. However, care should be exercised with the use of carbaryl to avoid application when flowers are open in an orchard, 
since carbaryl is very toxic to bees. For those that are concerned about the extent of pollination, flowers that were pollinated last weekend and before should start to grow. Any receptacle that is at least five to six millimeters in size has been fertilized and will give you an indication of potential early set. Less reliable, but nonetheless instructive, is the number of flowers in a cluster where the calyx are closing upward. Unpollinated flowers generally have their calyx flat. The following factors influence fruit set and the effects of chemical thinning and should be considered when making thinning decisions. For example, when a weak snowball bloom occurs, generally fruitlets thin easier and or fruit is set lighter. There is a rather lengthy table adapted from the Apple Thinning Guide by Phil Schwalier from April of 1996 in this week's Healthy Fruit. I will touch on a few of these things, but really this is another one of those things that you'll get more out of it if you have signed up for Healthy Fruit and are getting that newsletter and you should really take a good look at this. This has got some great information in it. Since these are all listed in order of importance, I'm just going to hit the top three and we're going to talk about increased thinning response and decreased thinning response in relation to those three factors. So first we're going to talk about bloom, heavy or snowball bloom, quick or short bloom, injured bloom or missing flower parts, or little or no foliage present on bloom will lead to an increased thinning response. Conversely, light bloom, a normal bloom period with good cross-pollination, healthy or large showy bloom, or abundant foliage present during bloom can lead to decreased thinning response. As it relates to bees and pollination, we'll talk about the same thing. Poor bee activity, poor pollination and fertilization leads to an increased thinning response. Good bee activity, good pollination and fertilization lead to decreased thinning response. And finally, pink and bloom weather. Cool, wet, or cloudy weather, excessive hot temperatures, cold or frosty temperatures, and excessive moisture all may lead to increased thinning response. Whereas warm, mostly dry or sunny weather, warm temperatures, no frost, mostly dry but also adequate moisture, all can lead to decreased thinning response. The final note on thinning before we move on to our guest article this week is this. The weather during and just after the thinning application is the most important factor to consider in predicting thinning response. Slow drying conditions, high humidities, frosty nights, high maximum temperatures, mostly warm to hot temperatures, 70 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit, lead to increased thinning response. Fast drying conditions, low humidities, no frost, lower maximum temperatures, or mostly cool temperatures, less than 70, lead to decreased thinning response. Our guest article is entitled Precipitation Can Impact the Performance of Insecticides on Fruit Crops, But Some Compounds Resist Wash-Off. This is based on Rainfast Characteristics of Insecticides on Fruit by Dr. John Wise from the Michigan State University. With the prevailing cool and wet weather, growers often question whether an application they have made will be effective if rainfall occurs too soon after the application. Rainfall occurring after application can have a significant effect on the residual activity and efficacy of pesticides. A pesticide's rainfastness, or its ability to withstand rainfall, is an important factor affecting the efficacy of foliar-applied pesticides. Generally, it is best to avoid pesticide application when rainfall is likely. However, weather can be unpredictable, so it is best to choose a product with good rainfast characteristics. Factors that can influence the impact of precipitation on the performance of insecticides are 
the plant penetrative attributes of the various compounds. Some pesticide chemistries like organophosphates have limited penetrative potential in plant tissue and thus are considered primarily as surface materials. Some compounds such as carbamates, oxidiazines, and pyrethroids penetrate plant cuticles, providing some resistance to wash off. Many newer compounds such as spinosins, diamides, avermectins, and some insect growth regulators readily penetrate plant cuticles and have translaminar movement in leaf tissue. Others, like the neonicotinoid insecticides, are systemic and can have translaminar moves from top of the surface of the leaf to the bottom, as well as acropetal movement in the plant's vascular system. This is when it moves from center to growing tips of the leaves. Penetration into plant tissue is generally expected to enhance rain fastness of pesticides. Number two, inherent toxicity of an insecticide to the target pest and the persistence of the compound in the environment. In some cases, a compound may be susceptible to wash off, but its environmental persistence and inherent toxicity to the target pest compensates for the loss of residue, thus delaying the need for immediate reapplication. Of course, amount of precipitation. In general, organophosphate insecticides have the highest susceptibility to wash off from precipitation, but following light rainfall, their high field rate toxicity to most target pests overcomes the necessity for immediate reapplication. Neonicotinoid insecticides are moderately susceptible to wash off, with residues that have moved systemically into plant tissue being highly rainfast and surface residues less so. Carbamate, IGR, and oxidiazine insecticides are moderately susceptible to wash off and vary widely in their toxicity to the range of relevant fruit pests. Diamide, spinosin, avermectin, and pyrethroid insecticides have proven to be moderate to highly rainfast on most fruit crops. For most insecticides, a drying time of two to six hours is sufficient to set the compound in or on the plant. With neonicotinoids, for which plant penetration is important, drying time can significantly influence rain fastness. For neonicotinoids, up to 24 hours is needed for optimal plant penetration. Thus, the time proximity of precipitation after application should be considered carefully. Spray adjuvants, Materials intended to aid the retention, penetration, or spread on the plant can also improve the performance of insecticides. For additional information, consult the original article, which can be found at canr.msu.edu forward slash news forward slash rainfast. Well, you get the gist. Go ahead and go to the healthy fruit issue from this week. Click on the link and check out the whole article. The next Healthy Fruit will be published on or about May 18, 2021. In the meantime, feel free to contact any of the UMass Fruit team if you have any fruit-related production questions. Until then, stay safe and be well.